my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Let me just run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Why the odds of a, another recession are 99%. Now, I know that sounds like it's almost certain, but in life, there's no such thing as certainties. There's only probabilities, which of course I say, and my good friend George Gammon says all the time on his channel. And so I sat down with him to dig into what are the odds of a recession? More importantly, what are the odds that he thinks that there's another big market crash coming in front of us? Why Michael Burry says there's one coming for sure. Remember, no certainties, only probabilities. We talk about that. We talk about the fundamentals of the market. Uh, what is causing GDP uh, growth to stall? We talk about the difference of the fiat money system versus a fractional reserve system. What a sound money system looks like, free banking and gold and Bitcoin. We talk about his run-ins with the Bitcoin community, the diffusion of innovation, where we're at in the market cycle, and so much more. This is a great interview. Always a good time hanging out with George. Let's go ahead and jump right into it. All right, so we've been having fun, George, uh, but let's get into some meat here. So I got a, I got a lot of questions I want to ask you. Um, I want to talk about the economy and the 99% chance of recession that you're talking about. Um, I want to get into assets, buying them when they're cheap and when they're expensive and some stuff you've been talking about on your second channel, Rebel Capitalist channel. Um, and uh, anyway, let's see how much we can get through. Uh, of course, you need no introduction. Everybody on my channel should know you by now. Uh, George Gammon, amazing, amazing macro addict, as you call yourself. And uh, I like to call you a good friend as well. So, George, let's just jump right into it. Um, you've Twitter, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, uh, YouTube. The algorithms, I think that the people like the fear porn, right? Uh, 
I made videos like that are hopeful and people just don't seem to like them. But when you talk about the world coming to an end, it seems like, uh, it seems like YouTube likes them. I mean, do you see the same thing? Yeah, I think the, the balancing act for me is I just try to stay authentic and do videos based on, on what I'm personally thinking about. And uh, I'm someone that believes that the fundamentals of the economy are incredibly unsound. And I also believe that most people are in the dark about how uh, these fundamentals could impact the, uh, the future of the standard of living for society at large. And, you know, they're going to listen to CNBC and they're going to hear just buy the dip. They're going to hear, you know, 6040, the portfolios or, or the economy's booming. Remember, Biden comes out and says the economy's on fire, blah, 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 blah. So I, the, the, when I hear that, I, I get plenty of that, uh, you know, positive kind of opinion. And for me, I always am very skeptical and I'm a contrarian by nature. And especially when I hear something from a central planner, the government, or an authoritarian, I step back and say, wait a minute, whatever they're saying, the opposite is probably true. So that's what kind of leads me down the path, and that's why I'm thinking about some of these, um, we'll call them fundamental cracks within the economy, and therefore that's what I'm talking about on my channel. And when I kind of think through it, I'm like, you know what, I, I think this is actually, or hopefully, hopefully, a service to most people because they they get kind of the risks from maybe my channel and your channel channel and then they get kind of the more rosy view uh, when they talk to their financial planner or they listen to Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman or CNBC so I, I think that we at the very least we have a balancing effect uh, but then of course I would argue that uh, we are most likely correct and, and they are wrong based on the probabilities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's what I want to talk about. Uh, you say that all the time. There's no certainties. There's only probabilities. And so let's talk probabilities. Um, I made a video and I said, uh, are you, are you, is it a hundred percent guaranteed the markets are going to crash a hundred percent or is it 90%? Well, if it's only 90%, let's take a look at that 10% and, oh, people didn't. I, I'm unsubscribing. How dare you say that the markets aren't going to crash? I was like, wow. I was just like, I want to look at the probabilities. Now, you've uh, made a recent video on your channel. The odds of recession are 99%. Yeah. So, okay, then there's a 1% chance <laughs> uh, they're not going to crash. I mean, I and, well, and I... and the only reason I didn't do 100 is because there are no certainties. Because there's no certainties. Now, uh, I want to talk about that, the probability of that, the base case. But you just said something before. You said the fundamentals of the economy are unsound. No doubt. When you look at the data, I mean, any data you want, I mean, it is... It looks like there's absolute bloodbath. But we also learned, if we didn't already know, we learned in 2020 that the economy does not equal the markets. So you yep. literally shut Absolutely the whole right. world down and all assets went to new all-time highs. So yeah. while... And that's one of the arguments that I would uh, have for the economy being unsound is that it's completely propped up by asset bubbles. Right. So uh, no doubt, no one can argue the data, the fundamentals of the economy being unsound are there, and it's only getting worse. Uh, but they don't equal they don't equal the market. So uh, first mm. of all, you talk about the recession. You're talking about the recession in the economy, or you're talking about asset prices falling. 
A recession in the economy. A recession in the economy. And, and it could be the global economy as well. It, I highly doubt that would exclude the United States because really the bond market is the global uh, – or the treasury market is the global bond market to a certain degree. Uh, but where I came to that 99% number is just by going back to 1950, and uh, I used the one-year and the 10-year as far as the yield and looking at the, uh, the, the uh, yield curve – between those two maturities, and then seeing, you know, how often that has predicted recession. And uh, if my memory serves me right, since 1950, there has been 11 official recessions, and the inversion of the 1 in 10 has predicted 10 of those 11. And we have never had a recession, by the way, without an inversion of that 1 in 10-year curve. Now, you say, okay, George, well, that's not exactly 99%. Maybe there's some wiggle room. Look, in 1965, and that was the year, we had an inversion, a pretty significant inversion of the one year and the 10-year, and we did not have an official recession. And those people would be correct. But, Mark, I don't know if you've, you've – I know you're a student of financial history, so you might know this one. But between uh, about five or, I don't know, 10 months after that we had that inversion in 1965, real GDP growth went from 10.1% down to 0.2. Not two, 0.2. (laughs) So, yeah, we didn't get a recession. But, I mean, is there really any difference between, you know, a decrease of uh, 10% in, in GDP growth and if we were to have gone from maybe 3% GDP growth down to negative 2, I mean, I think the impact on society is identical. And that's why I kind of got to that 99% number. Now, I would add further evidence. So that's just when we're talking about the 1 and the 10. Now, if you look at the current yield curve, it's not just the 2 and 10. It's not just the 1 and 10. It's not the 6-month. We've gone to a point where we are today, at least last time I checked a few days ago, where the 30-year treasury, the 30-year treasury is under reverse repo. So let me just walk your audience through that. If, if I don't know if you've done many videos on reverse repo, but that's the interest rate the Fed sets uh, to create a floor on interest rates throughout the entire economy. So the Fed has the the discount rate, it's got IOR, which is basically like Fed funds, and then it's got the repo. And so this is usually a a spread of about 20 or 25 basis points. And right now, reverse repo is at 3.8. So why is this a floor, a theoretical floor? Because this is the Fed saying that you can park your cash here, like a money market fund, and we will pay you risk-free 3.8%. It's totally risk-free. So why would anyone put their money in any other asset that yields less than 3.8%? That's the kind of the idea. But right now, the, the, what the yield curve is telling us is the, um, the economy is so screwed up. The government has created so many economic uh, distortions, malinvestments, and misallocations of resources that the 30-year treasury is trading below, the yield on the 30-year treasury, below that 3.8% that the Fed sets as a floor for interest rates in the entire economy. And then the next 
question becomes, well, does the Fed really control interest rates? And I, I would say, obviously not. Yeah. <laughs> and that, and that, that's proof in and of itself. But this is how dire the situation is right now. And I could go on to uh, the inversion and the uh, Eurodollar future curve. And it's just red flag after red flag after red flag. And I think the only thing that the uh, bulls can hang their hat on is the fact that we have unemployment at 3.7%. Or I guess they could say, well, we've seen the CPI come down from 8.2 to 7.7. But I would argue that just because the CPI is coming down, that doesn't mean that we're having an economic boom. (laughs) I mean, just look at the Great Depression, right? CPI came way down then. (laughs) And oh, by the way, CPI came way, way down in 2008 during the GFC. But that wasn't necessarily good for markets, was it? And um, so those are kind of the the main dynamics that I'm looking at right now. And I think that should be not just on everyone's radar, but I think that should be front and center. And and one more thing I'll add to that, Mark, is uh, the last time I checked, and this would have been last week or so when I did that whiteboard video, the point of inversion on the curve was between the one-year and the two-year, meaning uh, everything below the one-year or uh, anything with a higher maturity than one-year – was trading at a lower yield. So the 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 point was between the one year and the two year. Now, what I think you're going to see is that point getting uh, going to uh, getting shorter and shorter on the curve, right? As far as maturity. So right now, the inversion starts between the one and the two. I think we'll see it go from six to one, and then all the way from like one to three to where the one month is trading higher than the three-month. And then the last stop is that the one-month treasury is trading less than Fed funds. And when you see that, that's the bond market telling you or predicting that that's kind of the rough time frame uh, in which you'll see a Fed pivot. Hmm. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. Let me just run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. 
But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. A couple, I, I, saw, I saw a chart the other day, I think it was yesterday or day before, of the global market is inverted. So they averaged out all the bond yields globally, and like the whole world oh, is inverted on their yields. I didn't know that, but that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I know Snyder's been talking about the German market inversion, and that's even, in his opinion, more significant uh, or probably just as significant as the treasury market. Yeah. Now, when you talk about... Um, some of these things that show that potentially the, the economy is kind of doing okay, like the unemployment number, for example. We also know that that number is super flawed. If you dig into the data, we can see yeah, that the yeah. participation rate is at an all-time low. And we can yeah. see even deeper that a lot of the reason why the unemployment data actually looks somewhat decent is because people have taken multiple jobs. And most of the jobs they have taken are actually paying less than they were before. So just because— Yeah, that's why, can you, that's why you can have low unemployment— but two quarters of consecutive negative GDP growth because productivity tanks. Yeah. So you, you get everybody in the whole world working at a dollar an hour. It doesn't mean that's good. <laughs> or producing a dollar an hour. Or, yeah. or producing a dollar an hour doesn't mean it's good. Now, uh, again, if we go back and separate 2020, uh, seeing that the economy and the markets do not mean anything, and so to the point, you know, the economy is getting bad, well, let's look back just a couple years ago when we actually shut the economy down. I mean, who could have ever imagined we'd do that? But yet markets rallied to all-time highs. So now you take that, the recession, I guess, typically looking at, uh, at the economy itself and the pr productivity of the economy. Uh, and then you have another video that you did about Michael Burry predicting another huge crash. So the crash then is in, in markets and assets. So do you think that the economy struggling and potentially going into a recession um, equals markets crashing? Or, or I shouldn't say equal, but will lead to that, a high probability? Yeah, yeah, I, I get your point. Well, Burry was talking about the economy, and then I think his point was that would definitely impact asset prices. But I think if we look... Um, yeah, so... I'm just thinking through the best way to articulate this. I, I do think that if we have a significant recession in the real economy, in the real economy, this will initially impact asset prices. But then it depends, right? It depends on the response by not just the Federal Reserve, but probably more importantly now the government. So we go back to March of 2020. Let's use that as an example. Everyone remembers, you know, we had the news come out about the, we'll call it the Cervasa sickness, and everyone was just kind of on Wall Street in panic mode. And the Fed was scheduled to have a meeting on a Wednesday, and they had an emergency meeting on a su the Sunday prior. And they dropped rates from, I believe it was 1% down to zero. They came out and announced uh, or committed to up to $1 trillion a day in repo. And then they basically implemented QE Infinity. And the very next day, the market still, the Dow, 
was down still by like 1,500 points. And then it continued to just absolutely plummet. And the market didn't turn around until the government came in with the CARES Act, which, let's remember, they did that in an environment where the CPI, if my memory serves me well, was sub 2%. Mm-hmm. You know, so then the question becomes, can they do that again? But if it wasn't for the government intervention and or you could say the central planners intervening in uh, in the financial markets or maybe the real economy, I think you definitely would have seen the recession, if not economic depression, lead to a significant fall in uh, asset prices, most notably the stock market. So that's kind of uh, how I see it playing out is, you know, let's say that we get a significant recession or maybe a black swan event. That's what this yield curve is predicting. Initially, the markets keep going down until uh, the Fed does something. And based on the severity of the downturn, I think the market's either going to look at that and say, okay, that's adequate. We're still going to uh, continue to go up because of this quote-unquote stimulus, or they're going to look at the stimulus, and then they're going to uh, they're going to basically reconcile that with the level of risk because of the recession, depression, black swan, and they could potentially reject it based on the severity there. So I, I think there's kind of a, uh, an analysis or uh, people need to think through the probabilities of how significant – they think this downturn is going to be, and therefore what the Fed's or central planner's response would be, and if they are constrained at all by the current levels of inflation. It seems like the markets are calling the Fed's bluff on this, right? The Jay Powell has been very <laughs> upfront of saying, you know, we're going to crush demand, we're going to stick with it, we're going to keep raising rates. Uh, hey, wait, you didn't listen to me correctly. Like we're uh, pain, 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 <laughs> uh, and yet here the markets continue to rally. They're up today a couple points. Um, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, but look at what the ten years done, Mark. I mean, to, to your point, dude. Right? Jay Powell comes out and is incredibly hawkish. And, you know, we're going to crush the markets. We're going to crush inflation. We're going to raise rates to 100%. You know, I'm the next Paul Volcker, blah, 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 blah. And the 10-year says, oh, that's nice. I'm going to go ahead and go from 4% down to 3.6% in the matter of of like a week. Go ahead and give me that more of that hawkish talk. So it's ironic, isn't it, that the more hawkish the Fed gets uh, trying to increase interest rates to decrease demand, uh, to bring inflation down, the lower the interest rates go at the long end of the curve, which are the interest rates that most impact the overall rates in the general economy. Right. Well, it almost seems like the markets are somewhat calling the bluff because they're like, look, we know that you're serious and we believe you. And this kind of me talking, but like, I believe you, you're serious and, and you want to be the Volcker and you want to go that. And, and I don't doubt that. And, and I believe that you believe it. But there's also constraints, as you said, <laughs> like when the liquidity dries up in the treasury market, like you're going to have to do something. And so it's like maybe yeah. maybe we see like you're serious and I believe you're serious, but we also see that you're probably going to run out of room before you want to and you're going to be forced to act. We've seen the treasury markets getting very illiquid, acting very irrationally. You were seeing uh, nations around the world like Japan notably dumping treasuries. Uh, the treasury market is obviously the biggest market, but because of all the durations, it's not quite as liquid in, in some areas. And so yeah. maybe people are like, well, hey, OK like we believe you but like we also know you're probably not going to be able to do it and maybe that's why it's not selling off uh, well the so to be clear the the 10-year treasury there there's a significant bid there 
Uh, that's why the interest that's rates are going, going down. down. Right. So I, I, I think there is concern, at least I would be concerned with the liquidity at the long end of the U.S. curve uh, by looking at the tick data. So if, if I'm the Fed, I'm going to monitor that like a hawk or the Treasury. And I'm going to notice that when you look at the tick data, it is true that you do see a pretty significant demand coming in, but all the demand is from the private sector. So you see almost zero demand, and in fact, probably net selling from the public sector. And the tick data breaks this down. I wish I could remember the, the, the terms they use, but it's pretty obvious uh, when you look at the report. So what this means is all the central banks are, are net sellers of treasuries at the long end. And the uh, private institutions like the pension funds, the hedge funds in Japan, as an example, they are net buyers, and that's providing a lot of the liquidity you see. And then domestically, you're, you're not going to have that much liquidity, uh, relatively speaking, because obviously, you know, who's going to buy a 10-year treasury at 3.6% when the inflation rate is running at 77 So you have to ask yourself, why are these private investors in Japan or Europe buying treasuries? Why, why are they really kind of creating the, the demand side of the market? Well, it's because the dollar has been going up consistently. So if you're a, a Japanese investor or a pension fund, you could care less that the U.S. inflation rate is 7.7 because your liabilities or your expenses are not denominated in, in dollars. They're denominated in yen. So as long as the, the yen, or excuse me, as long as the dollar is going up against the yen and you and you're betting that it's going to continue in that direction, then why would you not buy a 10-year treasury at 3.6% if the dollar is appreciating in value by 10% relative to your liabilities, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's like a no-brainer. So I, I think that the, the risk there is, well, what happens if the dollar starts to go down? So like what happens if the Fed is, starts to become rather dovish and the dollar goes from wherever it is today, let's say 106 or something. Let's say it just, just hypothetically, yeah, it is just goes straight down to like 95. And then those public or those private investors outside of the United States, they're, they go from, oh my gosh, the dollar's going to go up forever to, oh my gosh, the dollar's going to go down forever relative to the yen. And then they, then they become net sellers of treasuries. And I think that's where you could get some significant liquidity issues at the long end of the curve. Uh, the short end of the curve, I'm not worried at all because it's because it, the supply de de demand dynamics are far different there because those T-bills are used as collateral. I saw an article yesterday. I was going to screen crap it, uh, cap it and, and uh, tag uh, Brent on it, uh, Brent Johnson on it on Twitter. And it was an uh, article, I think it was, maybe it was on Wall Street Journal saying that the dollar trade isn't, is dead. Like the dollar trade isn't what it, what it was anymore or something, something to that effect. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, right. I saw that on uh, The Economist, I think it was, they just came out with a magazine cover that said crypto is dead or, or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, I retweeted that and said, hmm, maybe I should uh, maybe I should start looking into crypto. Yeah. So, um, OK, so the recession is pretty much guaranteed. Ninety nine percent. Nothing certain. But um, looking at the data, we're on our way there. And 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 really, I mean, the, the, the growth of GDP has been so slow that, I mean, we're kind of in a recession anyway. Uh, not maybe not technically. Uh, but then. Yeah, well, I mean, 
like we said, the first two quarters of 2022, we had negative real GDP, right. and that's that's that used to be the definition of a recession until our friend Joe Biden changed it. Yeah, and the GDP <laughs> is 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 a flawed metric we can look at anyway, especially when you look at the amount of inflation that we've had in in the economy. So, uh, but then going in, so then then that doesn't necessarily equate into a market crash, asset prices falling. Uh, potentially, the Fed could do something to keep asset prices up, and for some reason, the markets don't believe that it's going to be that bad. Apparently. Um, yeah. I so mean, where do you put that have, on a percentage of, uh, or, or, I mean, are, are you at a, Michael Burry's predicted another huge crash. Are you at 50% we're going to have another big crash or maybe 80% or where are you there? Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. So basically, are we going to have a soft landing? Yeah. Um, I would say probably 20%, 80%. 20% we're going to have a soft landing. 80% we're going to have a hard landing. Hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, to your point, if, we, if I was going to argue the bull argument for the stock market, I would say we're going to have a soft landing because of XYZ reasons. So you're gradually, you know, all of these interest rate hikes that we've seen in the Fed, 
that takes a long time to filter through the economy. Uh, our good friend Adam Taggart always uses, these, uses the example of the pig through the python. So all, the interest rates that we've uh, had over the last six months, those will filter through the economy over the next six months, right. which will gradually bring inflation down from 7.7 down to, let's say, 6, down to 5, down to 4. And in this environment where the Fed is no longer worried about inflation, they can go ahead and stop raising interest rates. And once they stop raising interest rates, this is going to bring risk assets to the forefront again. And, um, you know, things like the stock market are going to rip higher and the dollar is going to go lower. And, um, you know, we're going to all hold hands and sing kumbaya (laughs) as the CPI just gradually goes down below the Fed's 2% target rate from now till the end of eternity. Uh, That's kind of the the rosy scenario. (laughs) Yeah, and the uh, the unlikeliness of that. Um, Yeah, I I think it's pretty unlikely. But if you want to, because one of the main reasons I do think it's unlikely is going back to what you're talking about with Burry and the bullwhip effect. And I don't know if you've done a video on that, but that's really fascinating. Uh, have you discussed that? Uh, I did. I did a video on that bullwhip, but that was months ago. Um, yeah, so I don't know if you saw recently the numbers came out for it was Target and Amazon. I know Amazon said they were, if my memory serves me, they're, they're laying off 10,000 people. Yeah. The and what I found staggering, Mark, I don't know if you saw this, this, uh, this data, but um, at the end of 2019, just or you know, beginning of 2020, prior to the, the pandemic, Amazon had about 800,000 employees. Fast forward to today, basically, call it two years later, Amazon has 1.6 million. Wow! They've literally doubled their workforce. They've increased it by 100 percent. Why? Because we had all the stimmy checks, we had all of this these government distortions that gave the market a sugar rush, and then all that sugar rush goes right into aggregate demand, pointed directly at Amazon. So the people at Amazon they don't watch the Mark Moss channel, mm-hmm. they don't watch the George Gammon channel, so they think that this new demand is just going to be there forever. They're like, oh my gosh, we're selling out of everything. We've got to grow. We've got to grow to meet all of this incredible demand like we've never seen before. So we're going to hire. We're going to hire, 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 hire another 800,000 people. And then once they hire that, that, that last person, uh, now all of a sudden they start to see sales just completely fall off a cliff. Right. And they realize that, oh my gosh, holy cow. All of that demand was artificial. That was a result of, let's just say, stimmy check, something that's completely temporary. That was just an economic sugar rush. And what do they do? They start laying off employees. Well, listen, if let's just say demand goes back down to this hypothetically, and I know it probably wouldn't, but let's just say that it goes back down to the 2019 level where they had 800,000 employees. Well, that means they're not going to cut 10,000. Right. They're going to cut 800,000 to get back down to that equilibrium point. And we see the exact same thing happening with Target. I think their last quarter, their profit was down by some astronomical number by like 50%. And uh, one of the little 
anecdotal pieces of evidence there that I saw in this report, I think it was on CNBC, is that they attributed a $400 million loss in this quarter, Mark, $400 million to theft. What? To theft. So we're we're getting to the point right now where not only uh, is this aggregate demand from stimmy checks running out, but now people are having to put all these things on their credit card. They're maxing out their credit card. They've gone through their savings, and they're quite literally having to resort to stealing the things they need just to get by. And so that's why I, I give an 80% uh, and, the, and that's basically the bullwhip effect. That's why I'm giving that 80% probability to the hard landing. Yeah. Uh, most of that theft is probably in California because it's legal. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that definitely doesn't help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you make it legal, guess what? More people are going to do it. Um, right. Man, there's so many things that I, 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 I lo- always love talking to. So many things I want to talk about here, but uh, I'll have to... Uh, so many little, little, little rabbit holes we can go into. I'm going to have to start chopping some of these off. Yeah. Uh, you know, Let's transition uh, where some of this into maybe some of your recent uh, flurry of texts or tweets going on on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and I want to start with a piece that you already talked about, which is the fundamentals of the economy are unsound. Um, all this manipulation has caused massive distortions. You talked about... Um, uh, you, you, you've talked about uh, the impact on society, all the malinvestment, all the distortions mm-hmm. that have happened. Um, you know, we saw Vladimir Lenin. He said the best way to destroy capitalism Putin, is Putin. Uh, no, no, I'm talking about Lenin. Uh, Len, oh, Lenin, Lenin had said that the best way to destroy capitalism is to debauch the currency through inflation, arbitrary stealing. And then at the end, he said uh, the best way in that af- after after all relationship of money is destroyed, the best way to get rich would be through gambling and theft. And so that's, that's, that's where we're at, right? Um, right. So, like, uh, we can see the obesity rate. Uh, we can see the incarceration rate. I mean, <laughs> we could sit here all day and name all the problems that we see in society. Yeah, ask Target. Yeah, ask Target for, you know, the, the amount they had in, just in theft, <laughs> right? And so uh, the impact on society, the malinvestment, the distortions, but really the impact on society. Heart disease is the number one killer in America. I mean, it's just mm. our food. Our food is killing us, right? This uh, safety and called it fiat money, fiat food. And so because our, our money is losing purchasing power so fast, food manufacturers have to start substituting cheaper products, and then our food gets worse, and then all these things. So is it worth it? Uh, the... You gave me some credit on Twitter because I'm able to see the, the, the cost-benefit analysis, something that you talk about all the time. So the cost-benefit analysis, um, we have massive distortions, massive malinvestments, and society is literally broken down to the point Target has to write off billions of dollars on theft. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we have you know FTX, which is probably one of the biggest fraud scams that I believe that we can get into the whole conversation, but I believe it, it has deep ties into the government, both uh, domestically and internationally. Um, and these are the distortions that we see. The problem there is that I don't know that most people understand the benefits of a elastic, uh, elastic money supply to begin with. Because in order to do so, you, you've got to really, really understand the global monetary system and you know, how many people fit into that category. Uh, I would argue very few. One thing I'd encourage your viewers to do, if they want to kind of explore this further, is look at a chart of global GDP growth 
And I actually pulled this one up on an interview I just did. Actually, let me, I know you probably can't do a screen share, but I can give them the uh, URL. It's ourworldindata.org forward slash economic dash growth. And really some interesting charts. One of them is GDP per capita, 19, uh, excuse me, it's actually 1820. I've got it to 1910, but 1820 to 2018. And this is actually adjusted for the rate of inflation and the cost of living between uh, countries. And uh, what you'll notice, and it breaks things down by like country category, but we're, we're kind of going along steadily here and uh, gr- seeing gradual growth in uh, you know, the early 1900s and 1920. And of course, we had a little bit of a flatline dip or so uh, in the 1930s, but then it starts to go up. But then you see what happened in the 1950s, yeah, and that that growth went parabolic, absolutely parabolic. And I know that there's a uh, you know a, a compounding effect to a certain degree, but I don't think that explains just how uh, how this just skyrocketed, right? And this is and then it goes to other charts. I'm sure you've used uh, Mark on the population growth mm-hmm. and also the use of energy. And I think that it's interesting this coincides with the not only creation but the expansion of the Eurodollar market, which is a market that was uh, had no currency and had no reserves. It was – you want to talk about fiat. That's like fiat on steroids, right? So, And I'm not saying that's optimal. I'm not saying that's optimal. And again, I totally get that there are costs and benefits – and I think my main point here to your your community and, and, and my community is regardless of the conclusions you draw, just realize there are no certainties. There are no certainties. And that's the biggest problem I have with the Bitcoin space, or a lot of them, is they speak in terms of certainties. But same thing with the gold bugs. You know, I just think to a little lesser degree. But going back to this chart, you know, you see that parabolic growth and that coincides directly with the expansion of the euro dollar system or this this very very uh, elastic money supply, and it is true. Let's go to a cost that this euro dollar system went bananas in the '90s and especially in the early 2000s, which many would argue resulted in the GFC, and then that resulted in a lot of bad things like QE. And so th- these are the costs. But when you look at that. Uh, that uh, GDP number, let's just say for the Western offshoots, and now I'm looking at this chart, so you'll have to forgive me here. I have but, it pulled uh, up in, too, I see it. Oh, do you? Okay, so 19, let's say 50, mm-hmm. uh, the blue line, we're looking at, what, 15,000 roughly in uh, GDP per capita? And in uh, 2018, now we're at uh, 55,000, let's call it. And so that's the benefit now, if you say the cost was the GFC, was it worth it? And I'm not saying that it or, was. Or the, co- or the cost is uh, heart disease being the number one killer, uh, yep. me, being having having a high, inf- uh, you know, having a high fatherless rate in the homes and high incarceration rate, and although I would argue four hundred billion in theft <laughs> happening, and and uh, vaccine right, but, passports locking people down, and see, but it, this is where it gets into a very interesting conversation about nuance. Because I would argue that if the per capita GDP was at thirty thousand right now instead of fifteen, 
that the although you're right, there's a massive obesity epidemic and whatnot, but I would argue the um, the average lifespan would be probably a decade less than it even is today with all the obesity. So, you know, again, I'm not saying there's a right or wrong here. Uh, what I am saying is this is definitely open to debate. Yeah. And that's why I, I get I get so it gets under my skin so much when I hear people talk in terms of of certainties. Yeah. So um, there's so many rabbit holes I would have loved to jump down there with you, but we're kind of running out of time here. Um, the the last thing I want to jump to and kind of still pulling on this thread, uh, you put out a video on your Rebel Capitalist channel um, talking about uh, you showed some of the on chain data for Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is unlike other financial assets where we have all this on-chain data and we can see uh, the coins on the network so we can verify how many there are and we can see when they are moved and we can see what the last price was when it moved. And you were kind of making this video saying you can see, you know, uh, 75% of the coins haven't moved in over six months or over a year. Oh, yeah. Right. That was actually a video I did where I was talking about maybe being bullish. Right. <laughs> so I want to talk about that for a minute. So uh, unlike any other financial asset, Bitcoin has transparency. Uh, the Bitcoin network mm. is not private it's uh it's open but it's anonymous so you don't know who owns these different wallets and so when you it, it allows you to look at this uh data that has just never been seen before and allows you to start yep. drawing some conclusions and so uh for the viewers uh what george was looking at is some on-chain data that shows um the last time coins were moved and you can see what the price point was on those coins the last time they were moved or you can see how long it's been since they they've moved and so what we can see there's like a mvrv which is the market value realized value so we can see what the valuation of those coins were the last time they're moved or uh, the, the point you were uh, chart you were looking at George was um, how long it's been I believe since they moved and so you were saying like 75% of the coins haven't moved in over six months and so yeah, maybe yeah. I think the the conclusion you were drawing is that maybe we haven't seen the the capitulation in the market yet because a lot of people are still hanging on yeah but we were probably getting close right, we we're getting close uh, because when you looked at past uh, uh, bottoms in, in the price of Bitcoin, it was always when there was uh, very few transactions yeah. over the last month. Yeah. And I'm not looking at the chart, but I'm just doing this kind of off of, yeah. of memory here. So, so my so my conclusion was just maybe, and I was just thinking this through live, right. you know, doing that video. But I thought maybe, just maybe, um, the capitulation would be when we see uh, this decrease or the increase in the amount of transactions while we see a decrease in price. Uh, because I think that's something that we hadn't seen before. And that would lead me to believe that all the people that are still, let's say, hodling, uh, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. but yet still are kind of maybe on the fence and they might not sell at Bitcoin at 15, but they, you know, once it gets down to 12, let's say, they're, they're, they're out, they're done. Right. Uh, that would lead me to believe that maybe we've hit that moment. And the reason why capitulation is so important, not only in Bitcoin, but commodities or, or, or any type of asset, is because that tells you that and even if there's a lot of bad news, even if there's terrible fundamentals, let's just say, uh, that all the people that have sold are done mm -hmm. or all the people that will sell have sold and therefore even if you just get one marginal buyer, that will dramatically increase the, the, the price. So that's really kind of what, what you're trying to, or at least I was trying to look for and get some clues to in that chart. 
you know, and if we're just talking strictly about the price of, of Bitcoin, another thing that I think is interesting is the fact that uh, we've had so much bad news uh, in the crypto space and we're still at, you know, I, I think we're at maybe 20, but it's only down to like 16 or something like that. I, I think that's showing some incredible resilience, but I just, especially if, when you combine, um, you know, what I'm seeing on Twitter and uh, in other places, I just don't think we're at that capitulation moment yet. Because in human psychology, that's when uh, nobody on social media, you know, wants to touch Bitcoin. They've they've sworn it off. Everyone knows this is going but, to zero. <laughs> but that's the part. It, that's the part I want to dig into. That's the part I want to dig into. So. Um, Let me just run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. What I, what I was going to say, so you've, uh, uh, no doubtly, you've seen the, you know, bell curve, uh, the innovation, of dif diffusion of innovation, right? So the way new innovations reach a market. And so in the beginning, you have the, the innovators, the creators, and then the second stage is what's called the true believers. And then there's a chasm before the early majority and then the late majority. Right. So you, you've seen that chart. 
yeah, yeah, but then you get to a peak and then you get denial right, and right, then right. it goes down. Well, well that's that's the Wall Street that's the Wall Street trader's psychology, which uh, I'm talking about just the diffusion of innovation. So it's a, like in the beginning you just have the, the creators, the innovators, they're the only ones there. And then you have the true believers that come and adopt this technology even though it's clunky and hard to use. They're the true believers. Yep, 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 then there's yep. the chasm, and the chasm has to get crossed. Something has to happen in the psychology before the early majority can come. And then eventually mm. the late majority just comes. So kind of like the internet, right? In 1995, it was a pain in the ass to use the internet. 1997, it was a pain in the ass to use the internet. Yeah, yeah. But eventually yeah. it got easy enough, and then the majority now now grandparents are using the internet, kind of a thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so the part I, the, if we look at that chart, and and if you look at that chart again, we're not sharing screens here, but um, it it's broken down typically by percentages of adoption. And so yeah. typically you get to the uh, true believers, and the chasm is somewhere around about an 18 percent adoption rate. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, I think what you're seeing in the Bitcoin community, first of all, Twitter is a very small, <laughs> small sample of of everybody. I think, you know, it's yeah, yeah. it's very, very, very small sample and, and small people can be very noisy there. So it's a very small sample. But um, I think what happens is in, in any, any new innovation, doesn't matter what it is, you have the, the innovators and then you have the true believers. And so these are the people these, these are the people are here for the revolution and revolutionaries are ready to go die. Right? They're, they're, they're not right in their mind, right? So any, any revolutionary moment in history, these people are willing to go sacrifice everything they have for this cause that they're rallying on. And they're not probably rational characters. Like, why would I go kill myself and lose everything I own for this cause that probably I'll never even see? And so you have these revolutionaries that are in this cause and, and back to this diffusion of innovation. You have these true believers. I believe in this and I'm willing to give everything for it. And you see people on Twitter say like, look, I'm here for the revolution. I'll lose it all. I don't care. Like, this is what I'm here for. And so I think if you understand like how revolutions start and then you understand the diffusion of innovation, which is true believers, then it starts to go, okay, well, we only have about 18 to 20% adoption. So everybody in is now in this hodling phase. Um, the market has shaken out all these people. So when I think when you look at the on-chain data, you got to keep that into consideration. And I would say when you look at uh, really, I think in May of this year, when you had the Terra Luna and then the Celsius and the BlockFi, and then the big capitulation came from the, the publicly traded Bitcoin miners who were forced to dump all they had. And the point that I think you're making, and I agree, uh, economics can be very simple. Uh, markets stop going down when there's no more sellers. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right? Very simple. And so if we've gotten rid of all those big sellers, the publicly traded Bitcoin miners had to get rid of everything. Uh, all the big blowups have happened. FTX blew up, but they didn't have any Bitcoin on their books. Um, and now we're down to these true believers that are just left. Uh, they haven't moved their coins. They're not going to. I know you referenced Michael Saylor. I had dinner with him uh, two weeks ago, um, and uh, him and his CFO of MicroStrategy, and they wanted to break down the numbers, and they want people to know about this. Um, their, uh, their liquidation level on one tranche is at $3,500. $3,500. So he's like, they would have to pin Bitcoin at two thousand dollars to even get us out of that position but we can post more collateral it's like we're not selling like that ain't happening like it's not ha yeah but that doesn't mean that the people that took out a mortgage or maxed out their credit card when bitcoin was at sixty five thousand aren't bankrupt right now no it certainly doesn't it certainly doesn't that's my pushback for sailor yeah, yeah and uh you know you know mark i'm incredibly respectful and, and most of the people in this space even if i disagree with them i would consider them friends uh but that's that's where i draw the line i i i, I just 
when people talk in terms of certainties that this is an that absolutely guaranteed that Bitcoin is going to a million dollars, so max out your credit card, mortgage your house. If you've got a business, go ahead and, and, and mortgage it to, to just buy more and more Bitcoin. And when you've done that, just force your grandmother to buy it. And that, that's completely unethical. And I do not agree with that, not just in Bitcoin. I don't agree with that with commodities, gold, um, you name it. That, that's just, um, yeah. I don't like to go down that path. I would agree. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, no one should ever do that. No one should ever risk more than they're willing to lose. No one should ever take on credit to go invest it. I mean, maybe invest into a business that you're trying to start. But for the most part, I would agree with you on that. And uh, uh, for the record, I never. Yeah, and that's what really differentiates you. And I, that's where I've got to give you so much credit uh, because you're a Bitcoiner, but you're not part of the Bitcoin cult. And uh, how I would uh, define that or how you know the difference is, uh, like we've been saying, if someone's talking in certainties, I, that's the first step to being part of that, that Bitcoin cult. And you don't do that. Yeah. And then the second step would be if, if you notice anything that uh, comes up is always going to be good for Bitcoin. That's the second thing, uh, the second way that you tell that we're that you or someone is in the Bitcoin cult is you say, well, what happens if interest rates go up? Oh, well, that's going to be great for Bitcoin. What happens if interest rates go down? Oh, well, that's going to be great for Bitcoin. You know, yeah. <laughs> and then the, it, it, you know the people I'm talking about, yeah. Mark, and you're not one of them. Yeah. And so hats off to you for that. And then thirdly uh, is that if you bring up some sort of uh, talking point uh, that is contrary to their belief system, do they get emotional? And, uh, and, and you don't do that. You always have civilized conversations, both you and, uh, you know, many of the other people in the Bitcoin space. So, you know, to your earlier point, I, if I'm guilty of anything, it's, it's by being too broad and, and being too general with the overall community. But I, I just think that there's just I get so frustrated with a couple of those people that I would put into that camp yeah. that I allow myself um, I guess, ironically, it's maybe get a little too emotional. Yeah. Well, anyway, so like I said, I think uh, you have any any new innovation, any new technology, you have this uh, these true believers that come in first, and they're the ones that kind of push that new innovation. And so they are the revolutionaries, and they are irrational, and they are ready to sacrifice their lives for that movement. And I, so I think you have that. Um, so I think you just take that into consideration. Um, and, and I agree, it, it, it does get over. No, I totally agree, Mark. I just, I, I totally agree. I just think that the the indicator that we're at that point where the only people left are just the the true revolutionaries is when you see the um the hysteria uh die down to almost zero mm -hmm. on social media that that'll be one of the ways yeah. and I, I now granted we're nowhere near where we were when it was 60 or 65 something like that but when you start seeing the cover of The Economist, and I know this isn't pertaining to Bitcoin specifically, but when you see the cover of Economist uh, saying that crypto is dead or whatever, this is a great sign. And um, so, you know, and I know that you're differentiating between value and price. And right now I'm more talking and, and focusing on price. Um, but I just want to throw that out there, food for thought. And, and that's why I totally get what you're saying, but I do think we still have a little ways to go until we get to that point where the only people hanging on are the true revolutionaries. True believers, yeah. 
Uh, the ECB put out a piece today saying uh, Bitcoin's on its last stand. ECB put, Great. put that out. <laughs> that was the ti- I, that's I, the title I, of their I, of their paper. <laughs> yeah, I think the more we see, the the more of an indication uh, that is that we are getting closer and closer to a bottom. Yeah. All right, we've gone uh, we've gone super long. Uh, I, I hadn't originally uh, planned on having that conversation, but you know, with all the stuff that gone on social media, I thought we'd talk about it. Well, you know, just on a final note here, just to put everything I have said throughout this entire video in proper context, I did have someone that was really, really trolling me last night, and they were asking me for my resume because they were implying that I was completely unqualified. Uh to have any view on, uh, you know, not just Bitcoin, but gold or macroeconomics in general, right? And so I, I think you might get a kick out of this. Let me read the, my response to this uh, gentleman was, uh, let me see. And I, you know, this is for your audience too. Maybe your audience really, uh, they may know me from Bitcoin, but they really don't know my backstory and they don't know all of my qualifications, or being a, 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 you know, a quote-unquote guru, right, mm-hmm. on social media. So here you go. If you doubted my qualifications, here they are. My CV is as follows. Almost flunked out of high school, had a .5 GPA my senior year. That's all Ds and Fs. <laughs> Was voted most likely to go to jail. Never have taken a business, finance, or economics class in my life, and haven't had a job in 20 years. And then I go on uh, to say, and you dare imply I am somehow unqualified. So, guys, I Mark am. Moss's uh, subscribers take everything I say with a grain of salt. I am wildly <laughs> unqualified. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. That's great. Uh, all right, man. It's been great. It's been a good conversation. Always fun ha- uh, hanging out and catching up with you. Definitely going to be coming down and hanging out with you and. Uh, south america here at some point yeah. soon um for everyone that doesn't know check out george gammon's channel george gammon on youtube and rebel capitalists on youtube as well with daily news and i believe you have tickets on sale for the next rebel capitalist live coming up in a couple months so check yeah. those out as well and um shoot with that anything else you want to collect you want to say before we hang it up no buddy i sure appreciate the conversation and uh as always i had a great time thanks for having me on All right, thanks so much for listening to this video, this interview that I did with George. Always a great time having George on. He's someone that I consider a friend, one of the smartest guys I know, and hopefully you benefited. It's brand new, season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa, and we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz, and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. 
If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.